been quite an exciting afternoon, I think, for most of you here. I think most of you are here for the, for the kids' play, and that was pretty neat to, uh, to be outdone by my own children in uh, public performances. <laughs> but we have a, an exciting topic in front of us tonight. As Matthew said, we're going through our series looking at uh, aspects of our DNA as a church, things that are important to us, things that should be important to every church as well. And the subject before us tonight is to have a high view of God. And I think there's things we can do in life, like we could be watching rugby now, or we could be playing a game or doing something that we considered fun. But I don't think there is anything more fun for a Christian than to stop, to sit down, to open God's Word, and to consider how great our God is. This is the most incredibly thrilling thing. So I'm looking forward to doing this. I'll say a few things. And then we will get you to open your Bibles and and look there at a particular passage of Scripture as well. But I want to say this, and I don't want you to hold me back and stop me for explanations, but I want want to say as created beings, we have an insatiable propensity to relativize God, whereas the God that actually reigns in heaven is infinite, independent, simple, impassable, immutable, atemporal, and and incorporeal, contemporary thought increasingly tends towards God being conceived as somewhat finite, dependent, complex, passable, mutable, temporal, and in a word, creaturely. We think of God more as a creature than as God. And so it's my goal this afternoon to lift your minds above all creaturely categories and limitations and to help you think of God in a category that is totally separate and you can even hear in that word totally holy as one writer said and not on the same scale ontologically that's in terms of being epistemologically morally or in any other way God is qualitatively different to us God is eternal and incorporeal. That means he has no flesh. He's a spiritual being. His being is infinite, holy other, or transcendent. That means he transcends and is above all of what we are as people. And the difference between us is not measurable, but infinite. There is an infinite gap between the greatness of God, his being, his essence, and all created things. Another theologian was... uh, Herman Bavinck, and he adds this, it is God who posits the creature, eternity which posits time, immensity which posits space, being which posits becoming, immutability which posits change, and he says there is nothing intermediate between these two classes of categories, a deep chasm separates God's being from that of all other creatures. Do you get the idea? God is totally separate uh, from the creation. In a nutshell, mankind is prone to having high thoughts of ourselves and low thoughts of God. And if we as Christians are to sufficiently inflame our hearts to worship God and truly live for His glory, then we need to shake off all small and idolatrous thoughts and to lift our minds to behold and to, to have a high view of our God. And so that's the subject that we have before us this afternoon. That's another, as we've said, another important part of our DNA as a church is having a high view of God. And we do that because a big God produces bold Christians and a small God produces shallow Christians. A big God produces productive Christians and a small God produces procrastinating 
procrastinating Christians. A big God produces character, and a small God produces carelessness. A big God produces trust in times of trouble, and a small God produces the pitiable attempt of pragmatism. A big God, excuse me, elicits a holy fear, a white-hot heart, reverence, wonder, and worship, while a small God engenders an irreverent familiarity, a lukewarm heart, and leads one to be unconcerned, unresponsive, and uninterested in the things of God. And so we all really need to have a high view of God. This is an essential part of being a Christian. Uh, it was the 1689, the Baptist Confession of Faith, that states this. So this is a section that just states factually what they believe about God, what we would believe about God too, I should add. And says, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself. That means he is AC, in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, that simplicity, or passions, which speaks of his impassibility, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, that's his sovereignty, for his own glory, which is his goal and purpose. That, isn't that an incredible statement? A boring old confession of faith that contains an incredibly high view of God. So that's the, the God that we confess. But before we get, uh, begin, um, there's an idea that, that we need to throw in the rubbish bin. And perhaps some of you have heard me say this, but I think it's worth saying again. That the idea we need to throw in the rubbish bin is called rationalism. And so rationalism is the idea, um, well, it, it, it's an idea that has the, the effect of really blinding us from the greatness of God. If we embrace this way of thinking, we will never see God truly as he is and as he's revealed to us in scripture and in his son, Jesus. But that, so the, the firstly, to, to, I want you to see how foolish this concept, this way of thinking, this rationalism is. And I think we're all born into this world wearing a pair of rationalistic goggles. It's like we're born with these things fixed on our face. Uh, and it's just how we see the world. But it was Francis Schaeffer, he, he defined rationalism as the idea that man is the measure of all things. That, that crystallizes the idea that man is the measure of all things. It's an idea that pervades our culture, and we are absolutely saturated by it. It's so hard for us to think outside of that category. Uh, it means that if we can't see it ourselves, it doesn't exist. For something to be real, I have to be able to see it as real. I am the ultimate judge on what is real. And, and it's foolish because it wrongly assumes that mankind is the ultimate being and measure of reality. It makes man as the apex creature only able to look down on things that are true. If the creature can see it, it exists. If it's above him, it cannot possibly be true because it's above man. And so it puts man at the top, which is, which is not, not, not true. 
Um, but Louis Burkhoff, another theologian, he has this incredibly insightful statement at the beginning of his uh, systematic theology, and he says this, the knowledge of God, so that's, think about how, how it is that we can know God, the knowledge of God differs and an important point from all other knowledge. In the study of all other sciences, man places himself above the object of his investigation and actively elicits from it his knowledge by whatever method may seem most appropriate. And so he's saying, I, I, I'm looking down on this, this. I can see this is a book. I can see that it's black. I'm, I can weigh it. I can measure it. I'm, I'm looking down on something to determine whether it's true. But he says, but in theology, he does not stand above, but rather under the object of his investigation. God is above us looking down on us. How could this book know anything about me? That's the problem that we have. Theology is a different category of knowledge. And so for um, man to conclude that there's no God is what the Bible calls foolishness. There are divine realities that exist and are real, and man simply cannot comprehend them. Our God is above and beyond us. Just because we can't see him like we can see an apple doesn't mean that he exists. But rationalism is small-minded. It's reductionistic. It reduces everything down to our human level and doesn't allow for anything greater than ourselves. Rationalism is like a cancer that sucks a high view or even just a biblical view of God out of our society. And so that's why I say we, we throw that idea in the rubbish bin. But surprisingly, a similar type of reductionistic thinking often even pervades Christianity. And so we're not immune from that type of thinking. So there's a, a kind of Christian rationalism where we only accept as true the doctrines that are obvious and apparent to us. And when any theological idea starts to rise above our own perception of the world and how we think the world works, we're prone to deny that it could be true. And so we, we have this tendency to pull everything back down to a level of understanding that we're comfortable with. And so you could think of something as simple as the doctrine of election, the Bible, God's word, reveals to us something about himself, how he acts. I chose you before the foundation of the world. And, and we sit there and go, I don't think that's how the world acts. That's not how I act. That's not how my, and, and we start to pull God down. But God's word, it just reveals things that are bigger than we are. And so we have to just trust God, a God who's bigger than us, who's revealing concepts that are above and beyond the way we know things work and think. And so the effect uh, even of some Christians is to limit God to a level of our knowledge and reason. And so the, the biblical word that, actually, uh, that accurately captures that tendency to, to relativize God is idolatry. That's the closest word. We're making an idol. We're bringing God down to something more like the creation rather than the creator. And so, as I said, we reject as strongly as possible this idea of rationalism. And it's not that we're irrational. It's just that God exists above and beyond this material created universe. He is the creator. But uh, if you let me give you another example to help you think of this, it's, um, perhaps this is a, a test to see if you're wearing these rationalistic goggles. Um, often, 
someone might argue for the existence of God. We call it the cosmological argument. You might have heard of this really simple idea. We, we point to an object in the room, like maybe one of these red chairs, and we ask, how did it get there? Obviously, you look at it and you think someone made it, someone caused it to be. And so you reason back from that, that there must be a cause, there must be an antecedent, and you get to the point where you believe that there must be a God that is the first cause that created all things, that there has to be a God that was the, the, the creation, the cause of all things that came into existence. And, it, and it's a good argument in a lot of ways, but then you imagine someone comes along, a clever fellow, and he says, but who created God? Who created God? And if you ever find yourself asking that question or even entertaining the possibility that it's a good question, you need to stop and realize that the God of the Bible is not just another created being. Do you see what you just made him? Who created God? Do you, he's, not, he's not a created being. He's eternal. He never was made. Uh, so sometimes questions tell us more than the answers. And, and what, what's happening there is that to ask that question is to demonstrate that you can only think in the category of created things. As I said, God is in a whole different category. Uh, and so it shows a mind that has been closed off by rationalism because the God of the Bible is uncreated and eternal. He never was created. He never came into being. And he exists in an entirely different category of being to that of everything in the created universe. And so to ask who created God is really, it's an oxymoron. Uh, to ask the question, who created God, is actually blasphemous. It does not have a high view of God. God is not created. We don't even stop to entertain that. He is the creator and everything else. So there's literally a category in theology where there's God and then there's everything else. And they exist in different categories. People call that the creator-creature distinction. Um, but in... Isaiah 46 verse 9, it says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is, how does it finish? There is none like me. He's totally unique. There is none like God. And so theology is the, the study of God. You can hear two words in it. Uh, the word for God, theos and logos, the word for words. And so theology is like words about God. We take that to mean uh, the, the study of God, knowing God. And so as we do theology, we're, we're looking in God's word to, to know God and understand him. But as, as soon as we start to do this, we run into a problem. And so theologians have this little saying, a little Latin saying, it says, finitum non capex infinity, and I'm sure you can hear it. It means the finite, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Do you see the picture of it? The finite cannot comprehend an infinite God, it's saying finite people simply don't have the capacity to understand an infinite being, an infinite God. And so it would be like trying to contain the vast volume of the world's oceans. Imagine all of that water and trying to contain it in a teacup. We're the teacup and God is the ocean. It's just the two don't compute. We can know true things about God, but we can never know God exhaustively. He just, he just is so much greater than we can and possibly even imagine or comprehend. 
But Matthew made a, a good point this morning. He mentioned that we are too often man-centered. Do you remember he, he made, I think, a little side comment that we're too often man-centered? Well, when we come to think of God, or when we come to do theology, we can often be too man-centered as well because there's more than one type of theology. Did you know that? Sounds funny, eh? There's more than one type of theology. Um, there is the theology or knowledge that we have of God. That's often how we think of theology, right? What do I know about that God? But that's quite a man-centered way to think of it. Our knowledge is so limited. Like I said, it's like that little teacup. We, we have that little bit of water compared to the vast greatness of what God is. And so that's our knowledge of God is tiny. It's little. It's a tiny glimpse of God's glory, just a, a little fraction of knowing how great our God is. But there's also in theology what we call archetype theology. And you think archetype is the thing that everything else comes from. And so this is God's theology. This, is, this speaks of what God knows of himself. Did you ever think of theology like that? What does God know of himself? Not, not what we know of him. This is a whole, this is a greater, a much higher thought than what we know of God. And it was early Protestant theologians, they would they, they would say that this is the divine wisdom of divine matters, what God knows of himself. Uh, one of these men uh, was by the name of Franciscus Junus, an early uh, Protestant reformer, and he says this, the essential and preeminent wisdom of God, which is born above every genus, like nothing gave this knowledge. This is the first spring of knowledge. It is eternal, essential, and is an as even the essence of God. It is simple, simultaneous, unparalleled understanding of everything. It persists, sorry, it persists in itself immutable and without variation. It is, as it were, the universal and unmoved principle of all principles, intellects, reason, conclusion, and all types of knowledge. This wisdom, speaking of God's knowledge of himself, this wisdom is the mother of all wisdom, and God alone understands its way. Isn't that a cool category to think? What does God know of himself? Isaiah 55 verse 8, it gives evidence of this divine wisdom by saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you see how the, the biblical language, it stretches us to see a God that is above every creaturely thing. This man, Junus, he goes on. I've actually scrubbed out a couple of pages because it's a pretty neat thing, but he goes on and he says, there are the, therefore about this infinite and amazing wisdom of God, what more shall we say? We said it before with one assertion that we should not seek to trace it out, but rather to stand in awe. This is not something that we can know. It's just something that we can worship. Whatever we can say about this wisdom, it is nothing in comparison to it. Whatever it is, it, it is infinite. It cannot be expressed. It is in itself amazing, and we ought to behold it with the highest reverence. God is, God, God's knowledge is just like, a, we can't put into words how great our God is, how vast his knowledge is. Uh, psalm 139 verse 6, from that incredible psalm, uh, in, in that same manner it says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too high, it is too high, I cannot 
attain to it. And, you know, all we're doing is speaking about one aspect of God, just his knowledge. And we're just lost in, in the wonder and the infinity of it. This is the knowledge of God, too wonderful for us, too high, I cannot attain it. Junus, he finishes as he speaks about this type of God's knowledge, and he speaks about the Apostle Paul. And if you remember in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33, and Paul says he was, uh, and I, actually Junus says Paul was caught up in the wonder of this wisdom and ex exclaimed very enthusiastically. So Paul was thinking about God's knowledge, about God's wisdom, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's just extolling the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, that's the infinite, the transcendent aspect to it. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. That language is just reaching for words to describe something that's higher than we can know about. But then Paul goes on in that section to quote the 40th uh, chapter of Isaiah, and that's to reinforce this high view of God. And I thought that was a nice thought because as I was thinking of what to share with you, and we want to open God's word now as well, um, the 40th chapter was on my mind, and I thought, well, that's good. Paul and me are on the same page at this point. But if you can turn with me to the 40th chapter of Isaiah, for those of you who've been on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at some of the earlier chapters and you're getting a preview to a really neat section of the book, the 40th chapter. The verses we want to focus on, they begin in verse 12 uh, that we'll look at specifically. But just before we get there, to give you some idea of the context, it's hard always just to jump into a passage of Scripture, isn't it? But the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are somewhat like the first 39 books of the Bible. They're kind of like the Old Testament. And then there's 27 chapters at the end, which is kind of like the New Testament. So the whole book is almost like a little Bible. It's a Bible within the Bible. But in this 40th chapter, where it just, it's just changed from almost the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so there's a significant moment. Um, for 39 chapters, Isaiah's been giving a word of judgment that Israel will go into captivity for their sins, that they'll be taken off into Babylon. But here, it's as if Isaiah jumps forward in history as though he is now in Babylon with the exiles, and he's now declaring the word of their salvation. So this hasn't even come about yet. They haven't even been taken into exile, and it's like Isaiah's transported somehow to see them when they are in exile and the word of God that will come to deliver them from it. It's just an incredible prophecy, um, but that God will return and save them. And so the whole of the 39 chapters that preceded this were almost like a platform or a staircase leading up to these final chapters. They're just building the foundation so that we can see these, these last chapters in the book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah has one message that the time of their distress in Babylon has ended. That's what he's trying to say. They're in there. They've been punished for their sins. That time has ended. God is now going to save you. He'll come and restore you and send you back to your land. But verse 1, so this is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. And, and the English here doesn't at all do justice to what's being. What do you think of when you hear the word comfort? like a pat on the back, I don't know, just comfort my people. Um, but the word translated comfort, it literally means to cause to breathe again, 
to cause to breathe it com- comfort, to cause to breathe again. And, and it doesn't mean that they were dead, and it doesn't mean that they were spiritually dead either and somehow brought to newness of life. And you're like, well, what does that mean, to, to cause to breathe again? But it means that they were so distressed in their exile. It's like when a child is so overcome with tears and they work themselves up into such a state. Do you know what I mean? And they're, they're not even, they're almost choking because they can't breathe. And, and you come alongside them and you say, just breathe, just, just calm down, count to 10. They're, they're that distressed, they're that worked up. And so this word here that comes in the 40th chapter, comfort my people, that's the imagery, if we could read in Hebrew, that's being evoked. Uh, it's that picture of, of helping them in such distress just to get a, 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 a breath of uh, air in their lungs. But verse 2, it intensifies the, the word of comfort, and it says, speak kindly to Jerusalem, and it means to speak to the heart. Uh, and so this is the summary of the message. It goes on there and says, and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So that's the summary of this message. It means that their exile for their sin had come to an end, that God had punished them in Babylon, that they were miserable, isolated, insecure, anxious, oppressed, they were destitute, they were impoverished, they were in such distress in their exile. Uh, One commentator said they had been in despair, bowed down under the weight of the punishment of their sins, and they were standing in need of consolation. And so now this word of consolation comes to them, and he was, he was coming back to restore them and to save them. And so that's the context of this 40th chapter. And so if you skip down now to the, the 12th verse, we see how it was that Isaiah comforted them. And how do you think he comforts them? He gives them a high view of God. He wants them to know how great their God is. And so that's because that's what gives God's people comfort. That's what gives us hope is when we stop to think how incredible and how great our God is. And so I I hope you can see that we're not just merely talking about theology. Uh, God's word uses this in God's people's lives in the most practical ways, the most distressed situation. What does he give them when, when they're at their most distressed? He gives them a high view of God. That's that's the practical use of this theology. That's how God's using it in this situation. But look at verse 12. It's a rhetorical question. And those are powerful things because, one, it asks us a question, so we're drawn into it. But we already know the answer as well. So he asks these rhetorical questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's, who's put all the oceans into his hand? You imagine how much we can lift in there, but and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth, earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. And, and we would answer as a question, who, who, who can do that? The answer, no one. We know that no one could possibly even come close to do, doing that. It makes us think of how small our hands are we can hold maybe, how much do you think? Half a cup of water if we put two hands together, but God holds the endless oceans in his hand. That's the picture he's trying to give us of how much greater he is than us. 
Isaiah uses the language, you can look there, of measuring. It says to measure, to mark off, to calculate, to weigh. And so the, the span of man's hands, you, you think, how, how big is that? Like 20 centimeters. The, the span of man's hands is nothing to the span of God's. God's hand span can mark the endless distance of the heavens. Like he is so much greater than us. Mankind may be able to, to measure a, a scoop of flour. You imagine in their culture, you know, they're measuring out sacks of flour and they can, they can have this much or however much it is, but God is able to measure the dust of the entire earth in one of his scoops uh, and, and can weigh the great mountains on his scale. You could have the most impressive scales in the world, but you couldn't put even Tomato Peak on it. Like God is, is just the picture it's giving us is a God far above and beyond anything we could imagine. The Hebrew here gives the idea of how easily this is for God to do. It's not that he can do it, that he just does it effortlessly. This is, this is nothing for God to do. He doesn't even break a sweat. He's at entire ease upholding the entire universe. Sometimes I think, how does God process all the prayers that are coming his way? Could you imagine the whole planet, 8 billion people, all the cries of distress, all the prayers, all the praise, all the thanks. He must be the most incredible processing mind. And it's like, you know what? He doesn't even break a sweat. He just knows it instantaneously, simply. He is just above and beyond. We can't even comprehend uh, the mind of God. <coughs> but the, the emphasis in, these, these, in verse 12 is on the power of God. We would say his omnipotence, the power of God. And in verse 13, there's a, another rhetorical question, but this one focuses on his knowledge. And so it's his omniscience, uh, we would say. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as a counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him the path of justice? Like, who taught God morality? And taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. And what's the answer? No one. No one teaches God anything. God stands in no need of external knowledge. He has all knowledge in and of and from himself. And we can't say anything to God that informs him of anything. And we can't say uh, one thing to God that would help him make a decision more correctly than we want it to happen. I think it's the most irreverent and debased thinking for someone to speak about God as if they could teach God something. Uh, rather, we should all come to God if we are to learn anything. All knowledge comes from God. We don't tell him what should and shouldn't take place. But the message here is that Israel's God is the God of absolute power and absolute wisdom and that he rules over all of creation. Verse 15, Isaiah now shifts uh, and he shows that, that God is the king and governor of the world. He rules and governs the world. And verse 15, he says, behold the nations. And you think of in that context of the powerful Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persian nations, they're all the world's superpowers. Surely that's where power in this world is located. Um, surely it's nations like that that determine the course of history. Surely they are the ones that are in control of this world. But verse 15 says, Behold, the nations, what are they like? They're like a drop from a bucket. 
and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Isn't that incredible? We, we would look to these things and go, man, maybe China. They've got like a billion plus people. That's a pretty big, they could, maybe they'd take over a little country like New Zealand or the United States with all their resources. That's a pretty powerful, intimidating country. But God says, they're like a drop from a, a bucket. And if you are carrying a bucket around, imagine it had been wet from use or something and a little drip falls off the bottom of it. So you're carrying that weight and a drip falls off. Do you even notice it? Do you even notice that? You don't even, you don't even feel that the drip. The most powerful nations are like a drip falling from a bucket to God. He's just so, he is not bothered by this world getting out of control. He is in total control of everything that's going on. And so that's the, the, the image there. Um, and so you could think too that the politicians in our world are no match for his power. They're like dust on the scales. And can you imagine like you've set the scale to zero and there's one or two specks of dust on there. It doesn't even register. It makes no difference. That's the nations, the politicians, the rulers, the kings, the queens, the, the presidents. They are nothing on God's scales. They don't even measure or register any weight. They're a nullity in comparison to the greatness of the God that reigns in heaven. Uh, Isaiah goes on and, and the thought changes into how we could even adequately express our adoration of such a God. So it's turning now to our worship. What could we do to thank and praise this God? Verse 16 says, Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. And so there are not a, we could say there's not enough trees in the world's greatest forests, and there's not enough animals for a sufficient sacrifice. That's talking in Old Testament language. They would obviously burn the bull or the, the animal as an offering to God, but you could take all the animals, strip them, the fields bare, pile them up, strip all the forests bare of trees, burn them. There's not enough wood for the sacrifice. There's not enough animals to be offered. And so that just means our God is so great that we are not even close to being able to adequately praise him. Isn't that an incredible thing? Uh, verse 17, it says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. They are just, <laughs> it just says it, they're just nothing in comparison to God. And then we get one of the greatest questions in the Bible, verse 18 to whom then will you liken God? To whom then will you liken God? Or, or what likeness will you compare with him? What could you possibly stand along beside God that, that would even register on the scale of greatness? There, there's, what would it be? Like, think of anything. There's, there's nothing at all. And so the answer, again, rhetorical, the answer is nothing. The idea is that God is beyond comparison. He is matchless, peerless, without equal, incomparable, unrivaled. You could keep thinking of other words. He stands alone in a category of greatness, all on his own. Uh, but next we see that he cannot even be set beside other gods. Maybe you think, oh, that, the, this God is a great God, but there's, there's other gods that maybe you could put them next to him. But the verse goes on, he is the only God and all the other gods are nothing compared to him. Uh, so he's, he's not just one of many, as I said, he's the only one. He is the true and living God. If you look at verse 19, it starts to talk about idols. 
they're competing gods. Verse 19, it says, as for the idol, a craftsman crafts it. And that is just ridiculous in and of itself. The craftsman made it. The person who is going to bow down and worship it just first made it. Um, a goldsmith plates it with gold. So you imagine they make this mold and they're putting gold on the outside of it. And a, a silversmith uh, fashions chains of silver. This is to attach it maybe back to the wall so it doesn't fall over. A God that can't even hold itself up straight. And so we see this is, a, this is really just a, a joke. It's like a, I don't know, what do you call it? Like an Old Testament meme? Is that the word? This is a meme that he's putting in there. Um, but it, it is, it's a joke. Without the people, this God would be nothing. The people literally made the God. But the reality is that without the true God, the people are nothing. It's the other way around. Verse 20, it speaks of those that cannot afford uh, a gold-coated idol. So there's these um, more ordinary people make a different idol. And it says, verse 20, he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. So he takes a, a, a block of wood, he, he finds a piece of timber, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter, that's not, not fall over. And you imagine them making this wooden idol. They, they have to make, maybe they make it wide and flatter at the bottom, and then they're planing off the bottom so that when they sit it down on the table or on the shelf, it, it won't wobble over. Like, again, it's just a ridiculous picture of a God. What a useless God. It can't even hold itself up, let alone the people that worship it. Imagine a little earthquake comes, rattles, and that God falls down on its face. That God can't even save itself, let alone save the people that are worshiping it. That God is useless. The, the, the picture here is laughable that there would be any other God that could possibly rival or stand beside the true and living God. Verse 21, it continues uh, by the way of questions. Verse 21, it says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Which is to say that you are without excuse. You have known. You have heard. Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? This is addressing the people of Israel. Are they, do they know already something of this God? Yes, they do. Uh, this is the God that made himself known to them through his word. He gave them his law. He revealed himself at Mount Sinai. He revealed himself as the pillar of cloud by day, the fire by night. They, he, this is the God that destroyed the Egyptians when, when they came after the Israelites. God had shown himself to his people. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Secondly, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Or, or you could say, have you not seen this God from the evidence in creation? Verse 22, it goes on, it is he, it is this God who sits above the circle of the earth. And it's in another image here, which is just so neat. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And so from God's perspective, you imagine sitting, reigning above the, the earth, looking down, and all these little people are just like insignificant little insects. They're just, I mean, what do we think when we see a few ants running around on the footpath? They're nothing compared to us. They're these tiny, insignificant things. That's people compared with God. And it goes on, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And you might imagine, we might get up in the morning and make our bed, and you know, we flick the mattress and it like covers our, our bed, and we think we're pretty clever. But God flicks out 
the heavens and the blue sky wraps and encircles the entire planet. Like he just exists in a, in a far greater way. Uh, verse 23, I love this. It says, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. They, they are nothing. They make their rules. They make their judgments. They may even go against us. Things in this life may not work out, but this, this chapter as well, it talks about how they're just, they're just nothing. They just grow up. They get blown away. They're nothing. God is eternal. He will still at the right time do everything he needs to do. But it is God who reduces rulers to nothing, makes the judges of the earth meaningless. And oh, how wrong we are to think that this world's rulers and politicians are in positions of power. We just need to stop every now and then and think of who our God really is. Who's really running this place? It's God is ultimately in control. He knows exactly the direction we're going, and it's exactly the direction he intends it to be going. Verse 24, it, it shows the weakness of these rulers and how temporary, uh, temporary they are. Verse 24, scarcely they have been planted. That's like barely, if, if anything. They've been just dug into the surface of the ground so weakly. Scarcely they have been planted. Scarcely they have been sown. Scarcely their stock has taken root in the earth. But he, speaking of God, he merely blows on them. Just goes, just blows on them. And, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble, just like the wind blowing away dust. They're nothing. You imagine someone who lives for, what, 80 years, and God is eternal. There's just nothing in comparison. They are just like little plants in loose soil, so lightly planted that the wind, without even the wind, if it was too windy, the plant would be blown out of the ground. That's the rulers, the judges of this earth. They are nothing compared to God. Uh, but the wind that is described is from the Lord. He merely blows on them. He is sovereign. He, he's even said to plant them, to put them there. He plants them. He blows them away. It's all by God's sovereign control. Um, verse 25, to, to emphasize that great question that we saw here, it's repeated uh, to, to bring it a second time and, and emphasize it. Verse 25. Five, to whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. But, but this time uh, it's God who is speaking and it's the, the name there for God is the Holy One. And I love that because in John 6, this is a really, um, I say Isianic, this, Isaiah will use this term, the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel. And John 6, 69, speaking of Jesus says, we have believed and have come to know that you, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And so if you put those together and you see, imagine this, Jesus, do you, do you think of him like this when he's standing before Pilate and, and he says, to whom then will you liken me? Jesus can say that because he is God. Can you imagine him? Does, does your thoughts of him go through the ceiling when everything we've just talked about God is, is in the person of Christ? And all the nations, all the rulers, Pilate himself, this is the God who, <coughs> who is in control of all those things, and he's standing there and he gives his life. That's who Jesus is. <coughs> I came away from my notes, so I'm a little lost now. 
but the um, but it is. It speaks of God. It speaks of Jesus being matchless. If you look at verse twenty-six. Uh, and so verse 26, it cries out to the, to the people to, to look and to take notice. Verse 26, <coughs> excuse me, lift up your eyes on high uh, and see who has created the stars. And so not just, you know, so there, were, there were even all the gods, weren't there? They, they worshipped the moon, they worshipped the sun. But he says, lift up your eyes and see who has created the stars. He's saying, don't look to the created things, look beyond them. See that realm, see that God who has created these things. If you think the sun is great, think about the one who created the sun. If you think the sun contains so much energy, power, think of the one that gave it the energy and power. The one who, it goes on, who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Just remarkable thing because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. All of them are perfectly in place, all, at, all named, which just staggers us with modern technology to see how many billions of stars there are. We don't even have that many words. Um, Isaiah, he, he then turns to the people, verse 27, and asks, why do you say, O Jacob, this is to God's people, and assert, O Israel, this is what they were saying, and, and obviously they were in their distress and exile, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. So they were suffering, they were, they were not being treated rightly, and, and so we think, as I said, of them in exile, thinking that God had completely turned away from them, and because so many years had passed, they questioned if God would keep his promises. Were they truly God's people? Uh, they wondered if God had grown tired. Maybe God had forgot them. Maybe God was just worn out and, and just ran out of energy. But verse 28, it says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding, and it reminds them of his knowledge again, his understanding is inscrutable. And so those that were despondent needed to know that for God, uh, even Babylon, they were miles away from home in Babylon. Uh, and we could say that God, even in New Zealand, down here on the bottom of the planet, it was not beyond the range of God's power. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter when in history you are doesn't matter how far you are downstream of one of God's promises. His word lasts forever. He is still God. He never gets tired, weary. Uh, that God uh, was eternal and immutable. That means unchanging and still possessed the same power that he had always displayed in the past. God hasn't run out of power. God isn't less active in our world now than he was 2,000 years ago. He is still the same God and, and when it mentions his wisdom, it means to say that he is not forgotten. And he knows exactly the right time to act and exactly when to bring help. How many times have we thought of that? You're a little too late, God, but it comes just at the right time, doesn't it? But far from becoming faint, God is actually the one who gives strength to the faint. If you look at verse 29, you can see that it says he gives strength to the weary. That comes from God, a strength from God. 
and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Or another translation says, he gives strength in abundance. And I like that. And so this strength comes to God's people. How do you think we get it? By faith. I said it this morning. I'm just repeating it from this morning. (laughs) But it comes to us by faith. If you look at verse 31, yet those who wait for the Lord... That's, a, a, that's an Old Testament way of saying those who believe in God, those who wait for the Lord, those who have faith in God, it's those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. It's just this is just amazing image of, of this eagle soaring through the sky. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And so the, the Hebrew meaning is that God will cause their wings to rise like an eagle. God will cause them to be able to keep running and running and running. God will give us the energy we need to keep running the Christian life if we have faith, if we look to Him. Uh, And so this is an enabling and enduring grace that God gives His people, His people that have what? A high view of God. That's where we get the energy from. And so this is what God wanted his people to know when they were down, when they were depressed. Um, And so this is the God in in whom they would have placed their hope and in whose word they had trusted. And so God uses, uh, it's almost like one of those passages in Job, you know, where God just lets out a little bit of who he is and he questions the people. They see the greatness of God. But he does that so that he can give them strength and energy and motivation because they, they see the greatness of the God that they believe. And that's why that passage is, is here. But I hope as we've been speaking that we um, have seen something of the greatness or we see a high view of God. But let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for a double dose on a Sunday. Lord, we do. We uh, are so thrilled to uh, see and comprehend thoughts that are so pitiful and small and compared to who you are. Lord, we have a, a pilgrim theology. We have little glimmers and rays. We see little pictures of our Savior and Lord Jesus. <laughs> but Lord, we, we look forward. We, we see now in a glass dimly, but we will see so much more face to face. We look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.